The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I'm sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he'll kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people do, people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab, Abinadab and made him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then made Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? They're still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives. So, so he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint the, him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, and a very warm welcome to you to Reality Church London. If I've not met you yet, my name is Bijan, the pastor for our church. And today, we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of 1 Samuel. and 2 Samuel, we'll be looking at the life and the prayers of David. And so as we begin, not just today's sermon, but this new summer series, let's go ahead and pray and ask for God's blessing to be with us. Our God, thank you for the opportunity to look at your word now. And so with Bibles open in front of us, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to understand and to experience your truth. And most of all, that we would see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. David was an imperfect man. He was an imperfect leader. He was a spiritual work in progress. David, as we'll see over the summer months, was someone who had successes and also some pretty incredible failures. But through it all, his highs and his lows, David was someone who was pursuing after the heart of God. And that's what makes his story helpful for us, that here is a man, imperfect though he was, who was running hard after God's own heart. Now, in preparation for this sermon series, I reread a little book by A.W. Tozer. It's called The Pursuit of God. And in the beginning of that book, he describes the essence of spiritual life, the essence of being a Christian like this. He says, faith is not a once-done act, but it's a continuous gaze at the heart of the triune God. 
That sentence is kind of a summary of the whole life of David, a continuous gaze at the heart of the triune God. And so as we look at David's life, we're gonna see someone who failed spectacularly and who did some things well, but who through all of it was running hard, who was gazing after the triune God. So his story begins here in 1 Samuel 16, and this is the story of David's anointing. This is where he appears. This is where his story begins. There are three things here in this really important passage that I think we need to see if we're gonna apply this story well to our lives. So let's look at 1 Samuel 16 and see a word of caution, God's surprising choice, and the man on the cross. So a word of caution that we all need to hear, God's surprising choice, and then the man on the cross. So first, a word of caution. Now, as we begin today, there are two questions that this passage invites us to wrestle with. These are questions that this passage asks you. Here they are. First, who are you really? And second, what do you really look like? Who are you really, and what do you really look like? Now, here's the backstory. Earlier in 1 Samuel, there was a man named Saul who was anointed as king over Israel. But Saul rejected God. He disobeyed God. And so as a result, God rejects Saul. And Saul is displaced from being king. And God says to Samuel, who was a prophet, it's now your job to go and find the new king. So God says to Samuel, I want you to go to Bethlehem. I want you to find a guy named Jesse. He's got children. He's got sons. And one of those sons is going to be Israel's next king. So Samuel the prophet makes his way to Bethlehem. He finds Jesse, and we pick up our story in verse 6. The text says, when they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. Here's the scene. God has told Samuel, one of Jesse's sons, this is the next king. So Samuel's there. He sees the oldest son of Jesse. Eliab. And he says, this must be the guy. Apparently, Eliab was tall, handsome. He looked like someone who would be king. And so Samuel thinks, this is obviously the guy. Job done, mission accomplished. I found him. Now, here's what you need to see. So key. Samuel is a prophet. He's a deeply spiritual man. I mean, God speaks directly to him. And even Samuel was prone to make judgments about other people based on how they looked, based on what he saw on the surface. Samuel is just like you and I. He was hardwired to care more about how a person looks on the outside than what was going on the inside. And you and I do that. We spend so much of our time and on our energy focused on how we appear rather than who we actually are. Surely this must be the one. I mean, look at how he looks. And then God's word of caution comes. Look with me if you would at verse seven. God says to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things that people look at. People look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks at the heart. This is God's word of caution. Now, let me be clear. 
This verse is not saying that how something or somebody looks doesn't matter at all. In fact, down in verse 12, David will be described as someone who is handsome. This passage is not saying that how you look or your temperament or your passions don't matter at all. What the passage is saying is those things, the outside things, the surface things, they don't matter most. God's word of caution is about making judgments that are merely based on superficial features. And you know, people, all of us, are prone to look at the outward appearance, the exterior, and to focus on that. We're trained, hardwired in our culture to care more about how we appear or how something looks than what we actually are on the inside, our character and the self that God sees. We do this in how we look at ourselves and we do this in the way we look at other people. Now, this has always been true. Even Samuel, all these thousands of years ago, he saw Eliab and thought that's the guy just based on how he looked. People have always done this. But I want to tell you something that you already know. I want to remind you that living now in the internet age, this tendency has been exponentially intensified and exacerbated. To be a society, to be a community of people who focus so much on what things look like rather than what's really happening in someone's heart. This is the world that we're swimming in. And even if you're not very active on social media, we all live in a world now that's shaped by this constant projection of self. I'll give you two examples. Uh, a few weeks ago in the Times, I read an article. It was about apps like TikTok and Instagram. And the author was pointing out how not that many years ago, it was basically only celebrities, famous people, who had to care about their image. They were the only ones whose images were regularly scrutinized and curated and viewed. But now with the advent of the internet, we all have audience to which as we perform. The author says, being told how to market yourself is no longer just a celebrity problem. It's the basic condition of being online. Never before has it been easier to care more about how things appear than how they actually are. And you know that this constant marketing of yourself, it's exhausting. It's truly draining. Gia Tolentino is a journalist, and she put out a book a few years ago called Trick Mirror. Have you ever been to a carnival or a fair and looked at a trick mirror? It's those mirrors where you see yourself, but you're all distorted. You look too tall. When I see myself in those mirrors, I'm happy. I'm like, wow, I'm tall. So you see yourself kind of wide or kind of funny looking. What happens is you're in a room and you're surrounded by all these mirrors and you kind of know that you're out there, but you can't really see your real self. And Gia Tolentino in her great book says, we're actually living in a world that's filled with trick mirrors. We're all constantly doing what she calls identity performance in which as you look out in the world, you see yourself, but you see yourself differently depending on who you're with. And we're constantly projecting images and versions of ourselves, and it's hard to find the real center, the real self. So you act one way with your family, you act another way with your friends, you act another way at work, and even you act a different way with your own self. Now, to some degree, that's healthy, right? If you showed up to work and you acted the same way with your boss, the way you do with your friends or at home, that might be a little weird. But what Tolentino is saying is we have so many versions of ourselves that are out there, it can be very exhausting. And then what the internet did 
is it gave us an ever-expanding audience to which we can perform. And she says, this is a long quote, but it's worthwhile, so follow along. She says, we have generated billions of dollars for social media platforms through our desires to replicate for the internet who we know, who we think we are, and who we want to be. Selfhood buckles under the weight of this commercial importance. You see, in physical spaces, there's a limited audience and a time span for every performance. But online, your audience can hypothetically keep expanding forever. And the performance never ends. It's like being on a job interview forever, which sounds terrifying. (laughs) So this constant identity performance is exhausting. We buckle under its weight, but we're also stuck. Even if we say, yeah, I don't want that, and that's not going to be me, and I'm quitting Instagram. This is, it's bigger than Instagram. This is the world in which we live. And the lie that's being whispered to you all the time is that what's on the exterior matters more than the interior. How you appear is more important than who you are. And it's not just about what you post online. You believe this lie every time that you think that getting another degree, getting more letters after your name, will make you more important. You believe this lie every time you say to yourself that if you just get new and different clothes, finally you'll be lovable. Or getting a promotion will finally make you worth something, will finally make you matter. You see, our culture is constantly training us to care more about how we appear than who we are, and we're exhausted by it. By looking at the outward appearance only, we create an unrealistic pressure on ourselves and we miss out on the truly good and kind and beautiful in the people around us. And so this is God's word of caution. Could it be more relevant? People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is inviting you to freedom as you learn to see yourself and others as more than what appears on the surface. I'll give you an example about how God challenged me in all of this. Years ago, I was working as a youth pastor in New York City, and like basically all youth ministries ever, our youth ministry needed more volunteers. This was working with teenagers. And so I had an appointment one day with someone who said, yeah, I'd love to volunteer. I'd love to serve in this ministry. So I was to meet him for coffee. He was a university graduate student. And as soon as I saw him walking towards me for this coffee, I thought, oh man, this isn't going to work because he looked like a total nerd. He looked very bookish, he looked kind of awkward, and he was. And I thought, there's just no way that this guy's gonna be able to connect with teenagers. But we had the meeting, and he seemed godly, and we were in desperate need of leaders, so we gave him a chance. (laughs) He was the best youth leader I've ever had. Absolutely the best. He loved those kids. And he took a real interest in those kids. In fact, I think part of the reason he looked the way he did is because he didn't care that much about how he looked. And instead, he used that energy and that emotional space to care about others and to love and serve other people. I was incredibly wrong in my initial assessment of who he was, and I'm so happy that I was wrong, and also that God was gracious to me. But this is God's word of caution. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So, that's the first word of caution, the first thing we see in this passage. But that leads us to ask, okay, it's not Eliab. 
Who is God's choice going to be? Who's going to be the next king of Israel? And that leads us now to the second part of our sermon where we see God's surprising choice. God tells Samuel, don't just look on the outside. Seven of Jesse's sons pass by Samuel. And we pick up the story now in verse 10. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. So Samuel asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? You can imagine Samuel starting to get nervous. He says, I think God told me to come to Bethlehem. I think he told me to find Jesse. And I'm looking at seven sons and God says, none of these are the ones. So Samuel says, do you have any others? And notice, verse 11, Jesse says, well, they're still the youngest. He's tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. We will not sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise, anoint him. This is the one. Here, finally, Jesse's eighth son is chosen by God to be king. But notice, God's choice is surprising. The eighth son was so overlooked, he was so insignificant even in his own family, that when Samuel said, I need to meet all of your sons, Jesse didn't even think to invite him in. He was out in the field. This is the eighth overlooked son. And notice, if you look carefully at the text, we see just how insignificant he appeared in his own family. First, the text describes this son as the youngest. In a patriarchal culture, power and status were given to the oldest, and the younger kids were dismissed with lesser importance. But this son is not just younger, he's the youngest. And one Hebrew scholar points out that the word youngest, you know, it's in English translated in kind of a soft way, but it literally could be translated baby brother. Jesse says, well, there's baby brother. It's a term that signifies the runt of the family, the person who doesn't have all that much importance, certainly not a prime candidate for prestigious work. He's the youngest. But second, this eighth son is described as a shepherd. Now, we have romantic visions of what shepherds are. But at this time, shepherds were people employed in a kind of work that was seen as menial and unimportant. No one wanted, no one grew up saying, oh, I hope I get to be a shepherd when I'm older. It was a job that somebody had to do, but I hope it's not me. And no one would ever think that a shepherd would ever amount to anything important. And notice, most importantly, not only is this eighth son the youngest and a shepherd, but he's nameless. Nobody says his name. Even his father, when he's talking about him, he won't even say his name is. And in this culture, as it is in many parts of the world today, a person's name is their identity. To be nameless is to be without status, to be without any sense of reputation or importance. It's as if his family was saying this is a non-entity. That's how he was viewed. Of all the sons of Jesse, it was this eighth son, the youngest, sheep-keeping, nameless son, that God says, rise and anoint him. This is the one. This is God's surprising choice. And you know, God often chooses things that are surprising to us. He often chooses people who seem the least likely 
and works through them in ways that defy the odds. The story of the Bible is a story of God's surprising choices and working in ways that appear very odd to us. Abraham and Sarah were way too old to have children. They had given up hope. And God comes to them and through them gives birth not just to a family, but to a nation. When all hope was lost and a city was devastated, it was Ruth, a widow and a foreigner, for whom God brought salvation into his people's lives. It was Daniel faithfully praying, even though it could cost him his life. And God shuts the mouth of lions. From outward appearances, things looked hopeless. But that's when God's surprising work took place. It's the story of the Bible. And so here, this eighth son of Jesse is chosen to be king. And it's only when we get down to verse 13 that we finally learn his name. This is David. What's interesting is verse 13 of this chapter is the first time David's name would be mentioned. His brothers, his father couldn't even say the name. But here in verse 13, he's named David. And do you not know that more than 600 times in the rest of the Old Testament, David will be named? It's a stunning thing. It's as if this nameless son, who seemed unimportant, would have his name repeated hundreds of times in the story of God. So what are we learning here about God's surprising choice? Well, just what God told Samuel. People look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. What did God see in David? Well, that's actually what we're going to be talking about for the rest of the summer. What was going on in David's heart? But just a quick summary. What God saw when he looked at David was not a perfect man, but a man who would pursue him with all of his might. He saw a person who was going to cultivate a spirituality of pursuing God. A man who would run after God's own heart. Outwardly, David did not look like much. But inwardly, God saw a man who would risk his own life to defend his people. Inwardly, God saw in David a man who would refuse to take revenge on his enemies. Because he knew that taking revenge was like drinking poison. And it would destroy his own soul. In David, God saw a man who would fail spectacularly, but who would then confess and repent honestly and vulnerably. When God looked at David, he saw a man who would run after his own heart. And he says, that's the one I choose. That's the king. But you know, as surprising as God's choice of David is, it's not the most surprising choice that God ever made. For that, we must look to the man on the cross. You see, as we're going to see each week during the summer, David is not so much of an example for us to follow, be like David, but he's actually a pointer. He's a type. He's pointing us to something beyond himself. In the life of David, we're actually pointed to David's greatest son, Jesus Christ. You see, in Jesus, we see the ultimate example of God's surprising choice. Like David, there was nothing about Jesus' physical appearance or his background that would have suggested anything of importance. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, the same town where David was anointed king. Bethlehem was an obscure and significant town. It was backwater. It was rural. It was the place that you didn't think much of. Jesus' human parents were dirt poor. Even in Jesus' physical appearance, you know, there's not a lot in the Bible that describes how Jesus looked. But the parts that do say things like this. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. 
He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. There was nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. And it's not just his appearance that was unspectacular. Think about how Jesus accomplished his greatest work in the world. It was through the most surprising of means. Jesus would win by losing. He would save others by dying on the cross. You know, again, we romanticize dying on a cross. We wear it on our necks. But in the first century, dying on a cross was a horrible, gruesome, shameful way to die. And yet it was through dying on that cross that Jesus would do his most spectacular work, healing the world and saving you. Do you see? If you were making judgments purely based on how things looked and how they appeared, you would have completely missed Jesus Christ. But on the cross, as Jesus died, we see the most beautiful person who ever lived. On the cross, we see the strongest love that has ever been shared. The cross didn't look beautiful. It didn't seem like love just from outward appearances. But remember, God looks at the heart. And this is how God always works. He does this most climactically in Jesus, but we would have missed it if we were just looking at the surface. How do we apply all of this to our lives? Four ideas to conclude. How do we apply the message of 1 Samuel 16 to our lives in the world today? Four quick ideas. First, some of you right now, even as I'm talking, feel guilty for how you've judged and been unkind and dismissive of other people based on how they looked, how they appear. And so know this, there is grace for you in Jesus Christ. On the cross, the Lord Jesus, the most glorious and beautiful person ever, became ugly. He was marred. He was disfigured for you. He died in your place and takes all of your shame on himself for all the mistakes that you've made by being too focused on outward appearances. Jesus died for that. And he gives you amazing grace to renew you and to even fuel within you the ability to make right what you've made wrong. There is grace for you in Jesus. Second point of application, some of you today feel a lot like David. You feel overlooked, insignificant, unseen, and forgotten. You don't think there's anything about you that's beautiful or impressive. You don't feel like anything you're doing is valuable. It's less valuable than even being a shepherd. Friend, God sees you. And God chooses the lowly things of this world. You are loved and you are lovable. And it's a lie from hell to believe otherwise. God demonstrates his love for you that even when you were separated from him, Jesus died in your place. Third point of application. This week, and this is an exhortation for all of us, this week spend some time paying attention to the interior of your life. What kind of person are you becoming truly? The lie that's whispered to our hearts is that how things appear matter more than what we actually are. But Jesus' love and grace frees us to care more about the things that matter most. 
our character and the posture of our hearts. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So spend time this week looking within and asking God to really show you, what do I look like? Not just on the outside, but what's really going on inside? Am I growing in love and in kindness and humility? Or do I spend most of my energy curating and cultivating my exterior life and ignoring the interior one? Engage in some self-reflection. And fourth point of application, as we rest in Jesus's grace, as we look to the cross, we see on that cross that things are not always as they appear. So ask God to help you to actually and truly see other people the way he sees them. As you look at other people, potential friends, even potential romantic interests, as you engage with colleagues or classmates or family members, ask God to help you see the things that matter most in the people that are right in front of you. There's a lot there. People are spectacular. May God give us eyes to see them the way he does. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Let's pray. Our God, thank you for this really powerful and needed word from 1 Samuel 16. Now as we come to a time of response and seek by the power of your spirit to apply this message to our lives, we ask for help. We ask for the power of your spirit to transform us and renew us and to help us be a people who, like you, look at the heart. And thank you that we're loved and safe and covered by Jesus Christ, the one who was beautiful beyond all telling, but who for our sakes died and bore the ugliness of this world so we could be given a life and a joy and a peace that never ends. Help us to rest in him today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand. We're gonna now sing a song of response. And after this song, I hope during the song, by the way, that you pray and think and apply the message of this sermon to your life. And after this song, I'll come back to instruct us about what will happen for our baptisms. But let's sing and respond together.